Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and I'm in a business center in a hotel. And hopefully, um, it does have a lot. You have to have a key to get in, and it's very quiet here. So hopefully, we will not be disturbed. Um, and you know, I have to do things like I put a, I taped a napkin over the motion center of the overhead light because it completely washed everything out. And uh, so, uh, and I hijacked a lamp from somewhere else in the hotel. If I don't get arrested throughout this show, then uh, we'll continue on. And I have a great guest tonight. Um, he's been involved with MUFON TV, started about three years ago. Ron James, he'll be coming on in just a moment. And uh, I want to talk quickly about our blog, our blog by uh, Charles Lear. Charles actually drove to Dave Marler's and uh, scanned some documents and went through a bunch of uh, papers and newspapers and and reports and wrote a great blog um, that actually one of my friends, Lee Spiegel, was involved in back in 1975. And it's known as uh, the UF. Well, I should say the title of the blog is called a UFO in Lumberton, North Carolina. I remember Lee talking about it and he called it the Dorito UFO. It was a triangle UFO in 1975. So when you hear a lot of people say these, you know, these triangle UFOs, there must be military or something like that. Well, uh, if they had what this uh, technology displayed back in 1975, where's it been all this time and how come nobody's ever talked about it? That's one of the questions. It shone a light down uh, on him and a bunch of police officers, uh, you know, during this incident. Then another police officer spotted it uh, far, not that far away, a few miles away as it was drifting. And uh, he got out of his car and he flashed his light at it, his, his spotlight. And the light beam came down at him, too. And he was horrified. It's quite a story. So check it out. Again, it's a UFO, a UFO in Lumberton, North Carolina by Charles Lear. So um, there, as you have, if you've been paying attention to UFOs, there's a heck of a lot going on as far as what the media is. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the mainstream media is saying, hey, it's OK to talk about UFOs now. We're not going to get uh, criticize. It's not such a fringy thing to talk about. There's really something to it. The report's coming out any day, that type of thing. So um, just about anywhere you look, you'll see UFOs in the news. And uh, I think we're living in a very interesting time. And I heard one uh, person talk about the subject and he said something like, well, there's scientists that are getting involved. And there's, uh, you know, people of, you know, academics, you know, getting involved and looking into this. And then there those people who have been looking into it uh, for a, for quite a while. And so uh, categorize me as one of those people. That's OK. I don't mind. But anyway, uh, let's start with our guest and bring him in now. Ron James, welcome to the show. Hi, Martin. Long time no see. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think. What was it? When were you on last? Was it 2015? I can't really remember. It was somewhere around it's then, right? It's been a while. I think it might have been right before MUFON's Secret Space Program um, uh, Symposium in Las Vegas. Ah, ah. So um, since it's been quite a while since you've been on and uh, you you do have a lot of things going on, can you introduce yourself and basically uh, tell the listening audience a little bit about you, some, a little bit something about yourself? Sure. Well, I'm Ron James, and I have uh, been kind of dabbling in this field for a very long time. I was uh, 
uh, brought in initially to produce the X conferences for Stephen Bassett as early as 2009. And I have been a filmmaker and event producer in the field ever since. I've won four EBE awards for my work on the Disclosure Dialogues, which I uh, filmed and produced. <clears throat> I've won two EBE awards uh, in association with Jennifer Stein for my work on Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. And I have produced uh, the X conferences uh, all three years that since I came in and took over. And I also, with Ruben Langdon and Stephen Bassett, produced the Citizen Hearing on Disclosure, which just had its eight-year anniversary. And um, I then started uh, MUFON Television as a joint venture with MUFON, and people say, well, why would you want to make that association? And MUFON is dedicated to the scientific understanding of this phenomenon for the betterment of humanity. So I chose to make my alignment with them despite you know, some of their challenges because of that reason. And so that's where that's where my efforts have been focused and my new show, Space Time, you can see on MUFON TV. And you can also see my show, Bigger Questions, on Amazon Prime. Excellent. Well, um, I, I have a lot of respect for Jennifer. Um, she's, she does a wonderful job in, in her work, a very nice uh, person. And I really liked the Travis film. And uh, so what what part did you play in that in that film? Um, I was brought in toward the end. We did the reenactments uh, sequences, uh, and then I did the second to the last edit of the film and a whole bunch of other uh, miscellaneous production tasks throughout the film. We went and did some shoots together and stuff like that. Yeah, um, that's one of those stories that I think um, is, you know, so solid, in my opinion. I mean, you know, the story has never changed. Of course, you know, there are the skeptics and there's the criticism, um, you know, but I really think that is, I mean, I know they made a movie of it. They made it, you know, kind of, they altered some things in the movie and stuff like that. And I know Jennifer's working on a sequel, basically, um, to this, or she said she was, and we're going to be in touch about that. But um, Yeah, it's like an addendum. Travis was over at my house. He spent the night the other night about a week ago, and we talked at length yeah. about Fire in the Sky and the possibility of doing a remake. Wouldn't it be great to do a remake of the movie and and cut the fluff out because that was not really needed in my opinion. Well, you know, the, the steampunk aliens is really what stuck in Travis's craw the most is because he understands that there has to be some dramatic license, but it was a little over the top. And um, so, yeah, he'd like to see the movie remade and he'd like to have a lot more input on the script and the look. Yeah. You know, the, the, the freaky, the, one of the freakiest parts of that story is the, the ones that looked like us that, um, were wearing masks over their face, you know, for air or whatever, breathing or whatever it was, you know, I mean, and, and that didn't, you know, didn't communicate in any type of way. And uh, the, just the whole thing is just so bizarre that they were mixed in with other, other beings of whatever, whoever they were. We filmed a full-length reenactment of the whole thing for the Travis documentary. It got cut up into bits and pieces for the film. But you can see it if you just uh, – in fact, on Amazon, uh, Travis Walton, What Happened to Me on Amazon Prime, you can uh, you can see that reenactment uncut with an interview with Travis that uh, not very many people have seen. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd like to see that. So uh, what do you think about the last several months? There's been quite a bit of action going on, and what do you think about all that? Well, you know, it's like that old song, meet the old boss, same as the old boss. 
meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's, it, it seems to me that as hopeful as we're getting, and certainly we do have reason to be uh, somewhat optimistic that we're going to at least get more than we've gotten in the past, uh, this whole thing's been done before. You know, we had the Robertson panel convene. Uh, a bunch of reports were made to Congress. The government admitted it, saw stuff that it didn't know what it was. And then, you know, that was that. Um, I think the current situation, I've done a couple of stories about it that you can see on Space Time. Um, I think that what we're dealing with right now is there's some circumstances that are forcing them to confront this. We don't know exactly what those circumstances are. Uh, a lot of people are venturing guesses. So we're holding out hope that we're going to get confirmation of a non-human intelligence. But even Lou Elizondo is starting to tamp down those expectations. So what are we going to get in June? I hope it's not a big nothing burger, but I'm going to be surprised if it's a, a sandwich with filet mignon. Well, yeah, I, you know, I have to agree with you because, you know, if you look at the history of what's happened in UFOs, there's been a lot of times when, uh, you know, there was talk about, oh, this is it. You know, this is the big one. You know, it's all going to, you know, uh, it's all going to come forth. And, and yeah, it's happened over and over again. And then um, but, you know, hey, you never know. Um, you know, I was reading an article. Uh, Chris Mellon posted an article up on um, on Twitter and I forget who it was a uh, physicist that wrote, uh, you know, like there's really nothing to it, nothing to the videos because uh, nothing can be corroborated from there. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, that's always the, the I understand. I understand and I agree with a lot of skepticism. But um, but I also think that if someone wants an answer, they should look for answers and not look to just discount everything right off right off the bat. Well, you know, I think we, we really do need to be skeptical, especially in the situation. Now, let's take a minute and just analyze what it is that we have actually been shown. At the end of the day, it's three videos that there's a lot of talk around these videos, witnesses, uh, you know, from the Navy and stuff that Lou has said that indicate that there's other videos and that the, these things were seen doing other things. But these three videos uh, are generally inconclusive. And there has yeah. been some debunking of these videos. And, and if you really want to make a case for that, they have a point. So if we're being told that there's a lot more, but we haven't seen it. And then these recent videos that were released um, through Jeremy Corbell, they show something, but I've never heard of a UFO that needed running lights. So I don't know what, what we're seeing there. And so I think that although we've heard that there's other evidence that gives us a lot of reason to be optimistic, what we've actually been given is inconclusive at best. And there's a lot of other situations popping up with, uh, with Navy patents that were issued with uh, rumors of other technology um, that we, you know, we could very possibly be in for a bit of a letdown, but I have other reasons to think that that's not the case. Um, I don't know if you want to elaborate on those or not, but, um, one of the things, yeah, go ahead if you'd like. You want to elaborate on that? Well, what do you think? Uh, there may be something more to it. Well, I think there's definitely something more to it. Obviously, anybody that's been in this field for any length of time has an understanding from the 
preponderance of evidence, just like we presented at the citizen hearing on disclosure. This was, it was always said that if you could put all of the evidence from credible witnesses in front of a jury, so to speak, and they were to weigh it like a jury would, uh, any normal jury would find in favor of the existence of a non-human intelligence engaging the human race. And that's what we did with the citizen hearing on disclosure. We put it in front of ex-Congress people and they were all moved by the evidence and definitely felt that there was something there that seemed to indicate that that was a big possibility, which was a lot of, that, that was a lot of traction at the time. So now we have the witness testimony and especially a lot of the stuff that's come from Lou. Um, you ha- kind of have to read between the lines and you have to look through a lot of his interviews to really understand what he's saying. He's been very, very hesitant to come out and just openly embrace the idea that, yes, these are extraterrestrial, they're not ours. But toward the end of season two of Unidentified, they were really moving in that direction. And they were also moving in the direction of these are uh, potentially extraterrestrial and they are not a threat. And I know a lot of people out there think that this is a big false flag trying to establish a threat and get funding for the militarization of space. I'm not sure I buy into that. I hope that's not the case. And I know Lou doesn't buy into it. and He doesn't want anything to do with that kind of narrative. So if you read between the lines of what's being said by the credible people, they've all but admitted it. And I told you I was going to make a big announcement um, on the show. I have video of um, an interview that I did with Lou that I have not released that is going to be part of an upcoming film on MUFON television. And he pretty much admits that there is a they. So that is what I talk about when I, when I say that I've, I've seen and heard things that make me optimistic. Yeah. How about that? That's something. Um, Now the, uh, the intelligence committee, the Senate intelligence committee overseeing um, this whole report that's supposed to be out uh, fairly soon or, you know, was uh, going to be out. I'm not sure if it will or will not. Um, One thing I've been wondering about is what type of access will they have? Will they have access to uh, top secret classified, say, the rest of the footage or other footage that is uh, being guarded as far as the top secret, um, you know, uh, classification? Do you happen to know if they'll have Uh, access to these things? I mean, it seems like that would be the way to really answer part of the question or get more information. Well, they're supposed to have access to everything. The the Defense Department is supposed to open the books. Uh, Are they going to do that? We've already heard a lot of rumblings from having our ear to the railroad tracks that there's a big war going on inside the Defense Department about what they're going to release and what they're not going to release. But inside the confidential hearings, to Congress that may remain classified, they're supposed to lay it out. And if, they, if they're really going to do that, they have a lot of explaining to do. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it pans out. Now, as far as what is released in an unclassified manner, uh, there's a lot, they have a lot more control over that. They can classify anything they want. So um, they can not release all of the information and get away with it. But behind closed doors, they're supposed to, they're supposed to lay out the whole story. And, um, you know, like Ricky used to say to Lucy, you got some splaining to do because this has been going on for a really long time and somebody needs to fess up. And I think the problem is that they still have the need to uh, not have accountability for the fact that this thing has been a cover up and a lie going back before Roswell. One of the things that's really concerning me is that I've seen the players 
basically sees the narrative. And the new narrative is, you know, the back in 2004, we started ATIP, and that's when we really started thinking about it and paying attention to it. And then, you know, then we got the Tic Tac videos. They're telling a whole new story. And the story, anybody that's in the field knows that this is not the accurate story. It is not the truth. It is not how long this has been going on. And we're just, we're just being lied to by an official narrative again. So I hope that after they get this first set of facts out, we will be able to revisit the past and we will get to the bottom of what happened at Roswell. We'll get to the bottom of what the uh, Catholic Church has in its archives. You know, there's a lot of answers they owe us. And I'm very, very concerned right now that they're just going to whitewash that away. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's I don't know what type of, you know, one of the questions I had when I uh, interviewed um, Lou Elizondo was, you know, basically, why why not look into the old cases? And he said that it had to do with the technology and the updated technology. You can get so much uh, better data from it. And so I, I do get that. But, I mean, you go back to uh, Grunge, you know, Project Blue Book and and um, what was the other one? Uh, but Sorry. I mean, yeah, right. So it's been studied for a long time. And, um, you know, I've, I've said probably too many times in the show, perhaps they don't have any idea and perhaps they still may not have much of an idea of what it is but still uh to claim that they can't protect us or protect the skies from whatever it is or do not know whatever it is is uh probably the reason for the cover-up you know just just an opinion here well you know there's a lot of debate about why the cover-up has occurred uh it could be you know anything from protecting the technology to the fact that there's a a a real threat or there's something that we really would be better off not knowing or that you know they just didn't think the society was ready for it it's going to upset world economics it will it'll upset a lot of stuff um they, there used to be a belief that it would uh interfere with mainstream religion i don't think that's really true anymore i think the catholic church has sort of opened the door uh so that if the uh, extraterrestrial presence is acknowledged they're going to be able to uh just absorb that into their vernacular so that's good but there is no denying that this has been a secret for a really long time, and there's pretty good evidence, a la an MJ-12 type of group being formed, that this has been being managed by people that have accountability to no one and are going to do whatever they have to do to keep the secret. So the fact that the faces of the disclosure situation we're getting now are really a lot of people who know a lot more than they're telling and are part of that same apparatus, at least on a surface level, that has kept this secret this whole time. A lot of people have a problem with that. I think, unfortunately, it's what we're getting. So we're just going to have to sit back and watch it unfold. Now, uh, as you said, the lot, there's a lot of explaining to do. Uh, <laughs> I just wonder how it could be explained. You know, like how could they, uh, you know, I mean, you have to think, how would the government uh, react to like if uh, let's just say that it came out that yes we are being visited uh, by extraterrestrials? Let's just say that. How would they and and that they knew about it and they covered it up? Um, how could they ever explain that? I mean, what would you well, think? 
that's the thing. They really can't. And, and so instead, their strategy is to whitewash as much of that away as they possibly can. The ET disclosure story, the way it's being told now, really officially started somewhat recently. Until then, I interviewed John Alexander, and I asked him some of this stuff point blank. And uh, I've interviewed John several times. And he said, well, you know, there was like something happened at Roswell, but there wasn't a whole lot of people that interested in it. And we had these little isolated incidents, but there was never this big uh, operation to pay attention to the topic. It just never materialized inside the military. And, you know, really that defies common sense. We have the military. We have the, these mines that are supposed to be dedicated to maintaining optimal defense it just makes no sense to me that they would ignore this this topic for as long as they have. And these same craft that we're seeing now, we've been seeing those craft for years. I just did a report, you can see it on YouTube, MUFON's channel, about um, Bruce McAbee and his investigation with J. Allen Hynek of a 1978 sighting that was videotaped, shown on radar, had the same kind of craft. Uh, that, that we're seeing now in these videos, um, able to perform really fast maneuvers, no wings. Uh, even the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting was very similar to this. So this has been going on for a long time. And these craft have been doing basically the same thing for a long time. And to think that they have not had a solid investigative body trying to get to the bottom of it is ludicrous. It just absolutely ludicrous. And so what I, what I, what I have come to believe is that this information in this secret was sequestered away, managed by a very elite, very select group that over time got deeper and deeper into its own shadows to the point where there's only a few people at the Defense Department that are read into the reality of everything. Everybody else is in the dark, even at the highest levels. And this group is pretty much accountable to no one. And so if we're going to be told something I believe it's going to be this very same group that decides what we're going to be told. And I think that that is what we're seeing right now, even though the people that are on TV talking are not really aware of, of how their narrative is being shaped and controlled. It is being shaped and controlled. I absolutely believe that. Do you think that um, there's, oh, I want to say like a, a custody of when you talk about a small amount of people. So would they have that information that they'd pass down to another generation, you know, because this has been going on for generations. How would that work? Well, you know, imagine that men in black, the, the comedy movie, imagine that's a real thing. Imagine there's a real organization that is dedicated to this. They answer to nobody. They have unlimited resources and, and they operate probably under some kind of global treaty because we've seen this secret, basically be sequestered and managed in the same way. And there is some evidence out there that this group is pretty much managing it on a worldwide basis. And so when you, when you think about that and you compare it, even though it's kind of funny to compare it to a comedy, but then, you know, we look at movies and some of the subject matter, like uh, close encounters of the third kind, supposedly from the Eisenhower event, uh, we find a lot more uh, truth that is stranger than fiction. Right, right. Uh, someone uh, posted this question. He's tried to find your show. He has no clue where to find it except the clips for old shows. So how can they find your show? Um, the new one I'm doing right now is called Space Time. If you go to MUFON's uh, YouTube channel, you can find it there. Uh, and then if right, you subscribe right behind you, right? 
<laughs> yes. Am I looking this, at this it behind is you? This new show. I've been doing a lot of different formats, trying to come up with something that I like. And uh, space time is basically I research the articles, I write the stories, I do the on-camera work, I do the graphics. I mean, the whole nine yards. It's like a one-man operation. And it's a format that I'm really happy with. So there's a few of the premiere episodes on MUFON's YouTube channel. And then if you go to MUFONtelevision.com um, forward slash space time, there's a few productions there. And then you can see an entire season of bigger questions where I interview like Richard Dolan, Stanton Friedman, uh, Linda Moulton Howe. All of that is available on Amazon Prime. Just look Ron James, bigger questions, and, and you can find those episodes. And then there's a whole bunch more buried in the in the past on YouTube and just all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you when you're talking about earlier, you mentioned about, you know, it is good to be skeptic. And I, I do agree, you know, to to a point. Um, you know, kind of can kind of cross the line, um, perhaps into, um, you know, people think you're debunking if you're just trying to find the answer. Um, so I know that I saw somewhere where you were talking about the metamaterials or the the possible crash materials. Um, how comfortable are you with that whole um, that whole situation? Well, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. And and what I've found in my investigation is that a lot of that debate comes from the way Anthony Bregalia interpreted what he got and, and built it up into the story that not everybody agrees with. But we're left with certain facts that are hard to refute. And if you watch the report, you can see it on uh, MUFON's YouTube channel. Just look up uh, materials uh, um, study or materials release. The the Defense Intelligence Agency released 154 pages of reports uh, about what's called metamaterials. Now, what was contained in those reports is descriptions of materials that we really don't know what they how, how to make them. We don't know what they do, and it's very clear in reading the reports that that they're speculating about what they may possibly do. So that, I found that very interesting. And then when I started digging a little bit deeper. Um, I found that the, uh, you know, one of the materials is called nitinol, which is a uh, memory-retaining shape-shifting alloy. Now, people are like, well, that sounds like what they found at Roswell. But nitinol actually has a history, and the history of nitinol is that it was discovered through synchronicity in a naval weapons laboratory in 1959. Um, and you can buy this stuff all over the place now. It's a, it's a shape shifting memory retaining metal alloy it doesn't do the exaggerated things that you hear about the roswell metal doing but it but it does similar stuff so just the pedigree of this material if you believe like the corso theory is not necessarily philip corso himself but the idea that if they found alien technology they would port it to industry for development then the fact that uh you know, a few years after the Roswell incident, we all of a sudden come up with this stuff out of a naval weapons research lab. It's kind of suspicious. But then the other materials that were listed in this, there is – they don't even know what the stuff does. At the very end, they're like, yes, these things may be very, very useful in uh, in aerospace. They've got uh, – uh, metals that, that exhibit a tunable frequency that was probably made at the time they manufactured it. They've got uh, metals that actually condense electromagnetic energy for better data storage, but they don't know how to make it. They don't know what it does. So Susan Gal from the Pentagon tried to walk this back. She said, this stuff has nothing to do with UFOs, but uh, it has a, it has to do with uh, naval weapons research that we're doing. 
And the problem with that is that Mr. Bergoglio's Freedom of Information Act request specifically said, I want you to send me information on debris that was recovered by the Department of Defense, shot off of UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomenon, and taken to Bigelow Aerospace, among others, to be studied. So the Defense Intelligence Agency is not just going to throw you a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with that. So the fact that it was returned under those very specific requests points to the fact that somewhere there's a um, an unknown origin to these materials. And then it gets even better. Uh, George Knapp interviews Robert Bigelow right around the same time I was working on this report. Now, we know that Bigelow Aerospace was part of ATIP, and we've already heard that they had possession of, of materials. It's not even a secret. But in the interview with George Knapp, Robert Bigelow denies that he ever laid eyes on any of these materials and then goes right on after that to admit that there is technology and that we can't reverse engineer it. So this is a story that just gets stranger and stranger. And when the Pentagon tries to walk it back in such a ludicrous manner, um, I've been attacked by some people for, for this story. I don't think they've watched the whole video because I, to this moment, I stand by my investigation on that matter. And I think it's a great report. Now, how um, you, you say that they can look at this material, but they don't know how it could be made. Uh, how, how far down can they look? I mean, the sub sub atomic level, I mean, they can't understand how it was produced. That that's kind of well. Here's okay. here's what it says in the reports. It, it's 154 pages of summary about the materials, its properties. It does not describe how it's manufactured, and it doesn't describe why it would be manufactured. I, I can't make the assumption that they don't know too much about about that because it doesn't say that in the in the request and in the reports, but. If they have a way of manufacturing it, it seems like they would mention that when they're talking about the analysis of the materials and what it does. Um, and then there's not a single material of the, of the four. There's the nitinol, and then there's three more. Uh, there's not a single one where they actually say, this is, this is why we made it. This is what it's good for. This is what we're going to use it for. It's all about the potential uses of this material and what it may potentially do. And so it seems to me that if you get to the point where you can manufacture a material, then you should have a pretty good idea why you manufactured it, and you should have a pretty good idea of what you were trying to achieve as far as its capabilities. So, you know, you kind of put two and two together in that, and it just doesn't add up. You know, one of the things I, I think has always been kind of puzzling when it comes to Roswell and the material there is, if that material was was so indestructible, how could it have blown to a billion bits all over the place? You know, uh, they found little pieces of it, and but yet they couldn't they couldn't destroy it or they couldn't cut it or anything. And uh, but the material that you're talking about, what are some of the properties that are similar to what they were talking about? And as far as uh, you said that it it will reshape itself, is that is that the main thing? Yeah, it's a memory-retaining, memory shape-shifting alloy. And what it's being used for now is in medical devices, you know, like they put it in uh, in stints and things like that. And it, it has the ability to flex out of shape and then go back to the 
back to its original shape. So, so in situations where you need something that's flexible but durable, uh, knit and all does the trick. So it's got a lot of industrial applications. I'm not a, I'm not an expert on it, but, um, it is out there and, and certainly it doesn't live up to the legends of the Roswell material. And as you just said, uh, that's a, that's a really good, um, question about the Roswell material. Maybe something, maybe it's impervious to some types of activity and maybe it's not impervious to others. Yeah, maybe something like an electrical charge of a lightning storm mm-hmm. somehow could have done something, you know, but that, that wouldn't really make that much sense either since it always goes on the outer the outer of all metals. Like uh, that's why you're safe in a car and the, the Tesla was safe in the cage, um, you know, when, when lightning uh, or, or a bolt of power hits it, it just travels on the outside. So it's another unlikely thing. Yeah, and you know, in the report, I'm not saying that that I have signed off on the idea that these are extraterrestrial materials retrieved, but I am pointing out that that's what was asked for in the Freedom of Information Act request. He didn't ask for reports about materials that were being studied and developed by the Department of Defense. He specifically asked for materials that came from residue, flotsam, shot off debris, uh, along those lines from UFOs or UAPs. Um, so why send him a report about something that doesn't match that? He would just say, we have no record of any of those types of materials. So somewhere somebody decided to let this stuff out. And I really urge everybody go to MUFON's YouTube channel. It's all free, of course. And, and you can see the, uh, the DIA materials story and kind of make up your own mind what you think. Um, you know, the, I, I know Jacques Vallée is, and Paola uh, Harris is out, Harris is out there, um, with a new book on Trinity. And uh, that's a case I haven't really looked into all that much, uh, only because I thought I thought that was proven as a hoax. So I was kind of shocked about that. I mean, uh, I, do you have any, have you ever looked into that case, 1945? No, not beyond uh, just what I've heard. And, you know, the thing is, if something is really, quote unquote, established as a hoax, then you have a bigger bar to uh, yeah. to jump over when you're trying to document it as a legitimate case, I think that the uh, the number people are running out of cases. You know, at the end of the day, there's only so many of them that are out there, and if we can recycle one and and make it relevant today, why not? So revisiting cases like this, there's nothing wrong with it. But at this point in time, I think we need to be looking forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a question on Mufon. Mufon has had some bumps in the road. Um, the last several years. Um, how is MUFON doing these days? Well, I decided to associate with MUFON. I can't speak for them. I, I do own half of MUFON television. MUFON owns the other half. That's our business arrangement. But I'm not a, I'm not a MUFON spokesperson. But what I will say is that, um, you know, any organization, MUFON's the largest and oldest organization investigating this in the world. It's all volunteers. It's not like it has a big paid staff that's doing a bunch of stuff. And so you're going to have growing pains. You're going to have experiences that you have to learn from. I think that uh, we just did some videotapes with Dave McDonald, who is running MUFON at the moment, doing a really good job. And he reiterates that MUFON is here for everybody. Uh, you know, none of this nonsense. We All we could do is absorb it. It happened. What can we do to make sure it doesn't happen again? How can we make it better? Uh, and so, you know, that's what they do. And they're doing a really good job of it. Membership is at an all-time high. MUFON itself is really shaping itself to be 
beyond just a group of investigators. It is the community for people who care about this topic. If you're an experiencer, there's a very robust world for you to enter when you become a member of MUFON. If you're just an armchair UFO enthusiast, we have MUFON television. We have all kinds of events that you can attend both in your area and live. And honestly, for all the ups and downs that MUFON's had, it is the sane voice of reason in this field. If you want to know, if you want to go to the best archives of, of UFO evidence ever presented, you're going to find that on MUFON. You're not going to find it on YouTube. It's too diluted. It's diluted with, with stuff that doesn't make sense and that's far-fetched and being sold by carnival barkers. So we've really managed to boil things down into a good presentation. And MUFON is working very hard to make an organization that everybody who cares about the topic can be a part of. And there's nobody else that's positioned to do that better than them. And so they've learned from the past. They're moving on better. And there's people at the top that really care about making sure that, that things like that aren't part of MUFON's future. Yeah. Um, you know, I understand you can't judge, you know, from, from a few, few bad apples, you can't judge the whole the whole thing. It's just so I, I, I would just say it's, a, it's uh, you know, it's morphing into hopefully something that will be uh, everything you just said. And uh, I, I'm kind of surprised that the uh, the membership is up, uh, but I'm not in another way because I uh, in checking this uh, this show in particular, I've noticed that my downloads on the audio podcast have almost uh, quadrupled in the last uh, two years and especially the last year. Maybe it had to do with covid, but also I think it had to do with UFOs being so much in the news these days as well. Yeah, you know, MUFON is reshaping its message. It's traditionally been, if you want to be a UFO investigator, join MUFON. You can come and we're going to train you and, and there's certain obligations you're going to have uh, to be a field investigator and all these things. And, and we still, or they, <laughs> don't want to get myself in trouble here, um, they, they still embrace that. If you're really interested in being a hardcore investigator and you want to go out in the field and you want to do the things that it takes to gather evidence and upload to the MUFON database and add to that, uh, MUFON is there for you. But if you are just somebody who cares about the topic and wants to be in a club with other people who care about the topic, there's a whole lot of stuff for people to do when they're a part of MUFON that doesn't have anything to do with dedicating your life to investigations. So, um, you know, I say you don't have to investigate to participate. And MUFON television is one of those cool things. We have a, our own channel. Uh, there's six or 700 pieces of commercial-free curated content on MUFON television. Uh, it's a great website, and it's included with your enhanced membership. So there has to be an organization to help people make sense of all this, especially as it unfolds, and there's nobody else. And so, you know, they're stepping up to take that role. Um, someone just someone just uh, posted this on the that says uh, you have to pay MUFON to be a field investigator. Is that that's not really so, is it? No, I mean you have to join and 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 pay membership dues, obviously, but they're not that expensive. And and if you take classes and you buy materials, you have to pay for that stuff. But you have to understand, MUFON is an all volunteer organization. It is not like we have some big government funding that comes in and pays for everything and MUFON's about making money. It's never been that way. People have that perception, but it's just not the case. Uh, 
people that become MUFON field investigators do so because they really want to make a difference and they want to go out and they want to help find answers. And there is always costs associated with doing stuff like that. MUFON reimburses some of its team members for their expenses, but it's just like anything else. When you sign up, take a class at college, you pay for the class, you pay for the materials, and you take the class. Um, this stuff does cost money, and it has to be paid for in some way. And so it's not like MUFON is is uh, extorting money out of its members, but there are costs associated with doing what it does. And, you know, it's that's life. All right. I want to address something in this chat room. Uh, so uh, this is from Welcome to the Show. And really, Martin, you judge third phase when they have made – that's third phase of the moon. They have that uh, YouTube channel. With a, with a lot of hoax videos on it that they cash in on. And uh, so anyway, uh, they've made uh, some credible evidence. This is uh, kind of like the argument against what I just said. Uh, third phase of the moon is out there to make money. That's what they're doing. And uh, there's a few other secure team. Ten is it? You know, I mean, so, uh, you know, stick up for them if you want to. But um, if you want real, real... Uh, videos well, look, there's a difference between there. yeah, there's a difference between entertainment and journalism, and just because somebody is trying to escape the fact that they've been busted hoaxing videos over and over and over again does not make them suddenly journalists. So they all have a place. I love Secure Team Ten. I like Tyler. Uh, I the, the cousins brothers. They've done some interesting stuff, but you don't suddenly. Uh, decide that it's going to be worth your while to tell the truth more than it's worth your while to make money on YouTube. So you won't find any hoax videos on MUFON TV and you won't find anything in my body of work that I put out that I do not think is of journalistic integrity. So it's not the same thing. Entertainment is entertainment. Kudos to these guys. But, you know, we're not talking about journalism here. And, and no matter how hard these groups try to become journalists, they can never wash that away of, of the things that they did in the past that were not about journalism. It's just, it, it doesn't wash. You, you can't, you know, a politician, uh, once he's voted out of office for doing certain things, is, has a really hard time coming back and being accepted differently. So I, I, I like these guys. I like the work that they do. It's very entertaining. But let's never uh, allow it to take the place of journalistic values, which are tell the truth from an impartial standpoint. And the idea of creating stories that are hyped up or fake or CG uh, and then all of a sudden claiming to be a journalist, the, the two things just don't match. You're either a carnival barker or you're a journalist, but you can't be both. Yeah, thank you. Uh yeah. So um, moving on, when uh, I'm going to get a lot were, of trouble for that one, but uh, yeah. So no, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, so if you were like running the show over a MUFON yourself, I know you're you're not a MUFON spoke spokesperson or anything like that, but do you think they could do something to improve? You know, some people they 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 complain because they can't get access to certain things uh, for sightings. A lot of people say that things kind of get buried there. Do you, do you think there's anything they could do to improve their service um, to make it more, I don't know, transparent? Is that, is that what I'm looking for? 
Well, you know, the, we look back at some of the history where MUFON's been accused of sequestering reports or altering stuff. I've, I, I, I have not seen serious evidence that that happened on any kind of a large scale. You're always dealing with egos. You're dealing with people that, um, you know, they, they find value to their material and maybe they uh, have plans for it. These kind of things happen, but it's not in MUFON's DNA to allow that stuff. And there's a lot of issues with the database and, and the database is kind of a clunky thing. It was custom made uh, by IBM and it's, you know, it's, it's always had issues. And so I know for a fact that they're working on making the database more universal, more accessible and easier to merge into other databases so that everybody that's in the field can kind of work together a little bit better. But MUFON is not trying to hide anything from anybody. It's more human error. And the fact that again, this is a, all volunteer organization and just by its very nature 4500 members somewhere around that worldwide it's and, and nobody's really getting paid it's going to be a little wonky it just is and so there's no nefarious intention behind that it's just that you know nobody's perfect and when everybody's volunteering their time and everybody's stretched really thin you know it is what it is but it's getting better when someone wants to become i've had people ask me this they, um, you know, have asked me this and I've just forward, forwarded them on. But if someone wants to become a field investigator, what type of uh, training do they have to do and what type of commitment do they have to make? Well, they, they would attend field training like at the Buffon Symposiums. We have field training classes and then in their local chapters, they would be brought in and taken out uh on investigations by the state directors and by other members in their local area. And so they're trained in that way. There's a little bit of training materials that they do have to buy, but it's not super expensive. And going to the symposium and taking the field training is not mandatory. So it's really a matter of getting as involved as you want to get. It's not like once you sign up, you're suddenly expected to do all kinds of stuff. You can do whatever you want and participate as much as you choose. Yeah. And but the the top ranking, say the uh, like the president and their office managers, they're they do actually draw a salary. Right. I mean, everyone else is volunteers. Yeah. The uh, well, obviously, you have to pay your office staff. The uh, the director of MUFON, because it has to be their full time job, they they get a salary. If I'm not mistaken, I think Dave, when he since he took over, is taking way less than was traditionally given or not taking it at all. Uh, I can't speak for sure on that, but that's what I was told. Um, but at the end of the day, you're talking about uh, people of executive level uh, caliber that really took a huge pay cut to go into what they do uh, for MUFON. The, the, it's not big bucks. So nobody nobody is cashing in. It's a labor of love even for people that are getting some money. You know, I started MUFON Television as it is a, it is a commercial joint venture project. Um, and I do it almost full time at this point. And I'm making a fraction of what I would make if I was doing other things with my video production. I've got a giant studio in LA. I used to uh, do all kinds of big music video productions. I've done Guns N' Roses, Smashing Pumpkins, Beach Boys. Kendrick Lamar filmed his video in my studio with George Clinton. I mean, that was the kind of stuff I was doing. And I'm so busy with MUFON at this point, I don't have time to do that stuff. And it is a financial <laughs> sacrifice. To, yeah, to I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I know someone was posting that earlier in the chat room that you had done all these these productions. 
And uh, do you do any of that now, or are you just switch? Are you just switched right over to this? I mean, or has has that another COVID um, casualty? Well, my live stream business, which I would do four or five major events a year, I've done Contact in the Desert, obviously the MUFON Symposium. I was doing the International Association for Near-Death Studies and a bunch of other ones pretty consistently, and that all vaporized in 2020. So that was about 80 grand off my plate. But um, I, uh, I just decided that I really wanted to dedicate most of my time for developing really good programming and original stuff. And I could be trying to pitch stuff to the networks. I could be doing a lot of other things like that with the shows that I'm producing. But I just like the freedom of not being told what to do and what to say. And I can get out here and I can I can pretty much speak my mind, whether it gets me in trouble or not. And so you're going to find, you know, uh, unabashed, uninfluenced stuff. I worked with A&E to help promote Unidentified and to help promote Project Blue Book. And, you know, all these people are really great. And A&E has done amazing things for the forward uh, momentum of disclosure. But at the end of the day, they are very, um, what's the phrase? What what the public is getting through these mainstream media outlets is very controlled and very filtered. And it's also dumbed down to appeal to the mass population. So it's never going to satisfy the hardcore people who know there's so much more. So, you know, that's what I'm that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Wow. Well, that's that's interesting. And so are you actually working in the very same studio right now that you uh, have done all these things? No, my studio is in L.A., and when the pandemic hit, I decided to just get out of L.A., so I bought a house in Sedona, and so I'm camped out right there. So I have, I still have my studio in L.A., which is it's also set up like, so I can live there when I go out, but I have a house in Sedona, so I set up a whole other studio in the lower level of this house, so I can pretty much be in front of the camera wherever I am. Interesting. Uh, so... Uh, Anyway, uh, let's see. We're going to be going into – I just wanted to note that during the break coming up, we're going to do a little uh, clip. It's a five-minute clip during the break. It will be an extra-long clip. So uh, keep your eyes uh, open for that, um, everyone. Uh, Well, we have – Let me uh, talk about that real quick. The the night before uh, the phenomenon – was released. James Fox was in Sedona and he came to my house and we talked about um, all of the trials and tribulations that went into making that film. And um, so this is an excerpt from that. And if you want to see the whole thing, you can go to MUFONtelevision.com forward slash space time and the whole hour interview is there. But James comes clean and opens up about really what he's been through as a filmmaker and him and I have a little bit in common and it was really fun um, to do it. So this, this is what you're going to see. Okay. Um, so I'm going to see if we can actually jump into that now. I'm, I'm just communicating o- over with. Uh, okay. So we're going to go into that break now. So everybody can uh, check that out. And so it's a extra long break uh, over at KGR radio. Thank you for your patience. And uh, we'll be right back after these messages. And uh, here's the clip. We're going to roll it now. Five minutes. All 
I'm Ron James, and we're here at a little studio I set up in Sedona, Arizona, because I'm laying low from Los Angeles for a while. I am lucky enough to have James Fox right here in Sedona. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. It's an exciting time. It really is an exciting time. Congratulations on the film. What you've done and the timing of it couldn't be better for the field and for everybody that wants to know more about the topic. Well, I just feel like it's something that we're all entitled to. You know, I look at, look at my son. I have a six-year-old son. I think that he's entitled to know this truth. I call it truth, but this reality. He's entitled. The children are entitled. Every man, woman, and child is entitled to have information about the bigger picture and where we fit. I think it's important, and even if it's a little scary. It's not just a handful of people that, that should have this information. And I understand there are a lot of questions that will remain unanswered. That's fine. And if it's a little scary, that's fine too. If it's the truth and it's our reality, we should know about it. I don't think anybody else has the, the right to make decisions no. for the whole of humanity. I don't either. I really don't. If it's all right with you, let's roll the trailer. Great. I knew this was breaking news for the front page of the New York Times. We need to accept that we are not alone in the universe. The federal government all these years has covered up everything. It's very, very bad for our country. There had been visitation, crashed craft, material recovered. It was not anything from this earth. All I could do is keep a mouth shut. The public has a right to know. There's a tremendous resistance. I guarantee every one of them knows that this event happened. Hiding these dark secrets, even from elected presidents. They came running up here in such a panic. Child can't make it up. Declassified government documents confirm ongoing UFO incursions at nuclear weapons sites. Are you saying that there's some evidence that still hasn't seen the light of day? I'm saying most of it hasn't seen the light of day. These things are real. They're here. This is happening now. So you've created this film that really brings people up to speed, and the timing couldn't be better. We basically finished the film in January. The film could have come out in, in January, right, of 2020. Um, but then, of course, the pandemic hit. Everything froze. Um, there was a whole stay-at-home order, and everyone was like, release your movie, release it now, release it now. But we were holding out for a quick solution to this pandemic and thinking, like, you know, we still want our theatrical. Yes. But, you know, we were hold I was hoping that it was going to, you know, we were going to get rid of this pandemic and we could get our theatrical, but that didn't happen. So we sat on the film for, like, months and months and months, right? Six months where it could have been out. Well, meanwhile, during that six-month window, all the content that had been finished had been gone through for the most part. So there was a dearth of, of fresh content. Suddenly, you're getting all these platforms that normally want to hoard it to themselves are having to share it. Right. And what that means is, is that it's going to be seen by more people in the end because we'll get all the platforms. Yes, we might miss our theatrical for the time being, but we'll get all these other platforms make up for it we'll end up getting a lot more eyeballs on the film than we would have with what our previous distribution plan was. 
Congratulations on the phenomenon. I hope it goes as far as it can go. It's going to be a big thing as far as how it helps people to really get up to speed. And as an independent filmmaker, you just really hit hit your stride. I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you. You know, I, I uh, set out 26 years ago to create a body of evidence that could be presented to mainstream and, and digestible to mainstream um, that transcends the UFO community. And I think we finally did it. We're back. Uh, my guest tonight is Ron James. Welcome back, Ron. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I've been hopping in the chat over here. Yeah, it's definitely getting interesting. Yes. Yeah, a lot A lot of, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of activity in there. And You know, I would like to mention that, um, you know, when Dr. Roger Lear was a really good friend of mine, and when he passed away, I was rounding up, uh, footage and presentations, and I put the, uh, the uh, Dr. Roger Lear tribute collection, and the guys from Third Phase of Moon had actually done a pretty good piece, and they let me use it. I put it on the DVDs, and we were able to actually make a donation to Roger Lear's family uh, to help with his burial expenses, because he died with uh, just an amazingly uh, small number of resources. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to, I would like to acknowledge that, that, that those guys did do that and, and that it was really cool. And so, you know, I'll always feel good, um, about the fact that that happened because it, it made it possible for, possible for me to help these guys out. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I didn't know that he, he was a very nice gentleman and, uh, I really liked speaking to him, you know, speaking to him. The one thing I always had a question about was, and, and I haven't really looked into it in a number of years, except when he was around, was the uh, Turkish UFO that, whether that was an anomaly, a camera anomaly or what, do you know what I'm talking about? It was, uh, he filmed it in Turkey. Oh yeah. That, that was a really interesting set of videos that, that he was involved in. Um, it's definitely compelling and, and it, it looks strange. I never really got to the bottom of, uh, you know, how legit it was, but it got a lot of press and, you know, you can see the little alien guys kind of in the, in the ship. So I th- I find it very coincidental that, you know, him being a major UFO researcher would just happen to be in the right place at the right time. But maybe he got that footage because he was a, a classic UFO researcher. If I remember right, weren't they at a UFO conference or something? When yeah, they it was, it was something like that. Yeah, and uh, that's not the first and only time you've you've heard heard these stories over the years where people have been at a conference and uh, something has happened. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard about the Coronado thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've worked with Yvonne Smith a few times. Uh, I've interviewed yeah. her. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a case that definitely deserves more study. Uh, she wrote a book about it and, uh, we're working on a show called Experiencer together, but we had to put it on the shelf because we couldn't get enough experiencers to go on camera. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, do a lot of people say, yes, I'll go on, but, you know, blur me out or, or alter my voice, you know, that type of thing? Uh, most of them express an interest, and then when they realize that they're going to be hypnotized, uh, I mean, this particular show had a formula. And so, uh, yeah, people really get cold feet. Oh, especially if they're going to be hypnotized, probably. Yeah. 
we wanted to film the hypnotic regressions and then we wanted to interview them afterwards. Uh, very ambitious and, but it didn't have legs. We couldn't get enough people to consistently fuel a series. So it got put on the shelf, but I have a lot of respect for Yvonne Smith. She's done some amazing work. Yeah. She's a nice woman. Um, you know, it, that, that was part of this whole field. When I first started getting into it, I, I became really puzzled by and on the fence and it's still a hard pill to swallow the whole, uh, you know, experience or abduction thing. You know, it, it's, there's just seems like there's so many questions like why would they keep, you know, uh, I know you can't think of things in human terms if they're not human, but you know, why would they keep abducting the same people over and over again? And why the same families and, or, you know, is there something else going on? And then why is it just here in this country so much and not in other places? You know, that type of thing. Well, I don't know if that's, you know, um, really, hundred percent correct because there's a lot of abduction experiences happening in other places. What's, what's interesting about the whole phenomenon is that uh, we have a lot of people telling similar stories and in my discussions with other researchers, especially one I had recently with Linda Moulton Howe, we're talking about the idea that there is a number of extraterrestrial species that are engaging the planet and that not all of them have the same agenda for humanity's outcome. So you might have one race that is doing genetic experiments and, and treating it like that. You might have another race that really wants to see us evolve into a enlightened species so we can take place in some kind of a galactic federation. You might have other species that would like to harvest this planet in some way. Uh, so there could be a lot of different reasons and a lot of different, um, uh, factions at play. And so it's just like what happened with Travis Walton. This does not seem to be the same types of uh, extraterrestrials that are on an abduction team. They might not even be the same group. It, it's like they were doing some kind of uh, biological experiments that didn't involve humans, and Travis was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we have these these ex these experiences happening, and we have a lot of the same stories. What's coming out now an experience or research that Kathleen Marden has done and Ray Hernandez with the Free Foundation has done is we're finding that people are being contacted in this traditional thing of, of unpleasant experiences is not the norm. It is more of a, uh, uh, an enlightening experience that when first encountered could result in fear and trauma, but as it progresses, uh, it's really not that. And so we have to ask ourselves, maybe it's, it hasn't been that all along. And I think also the experience or phenomenon is really pointing to the fact that when it comes to figuring out UFOs, we might not be asking the right questions. I think that's a very strong point. Um, that's, a. uh, something I have thought about, you know, maybe we have no idea. Maybe that's, that's the thing we need to know the most is what questions should we should be asking. Well, let's, let's think about that for a second. When, when we're talking about the potential for extraterrestrial species and we say, well, are they from Mars? Are they from inside the planet? Are they from Zeta Reticuli? Are they Palladians? Uh, the question really is what, it, what is this fact telling us about the nature of our reality. And then when we look at um, the experiencer phenomenon, and then we look at things like near-death experiences, and we look at things like angelic visitations, 
when we're looking at trying to figure out where an extraterrestrial species is coming from and we're arguing about what they are and who they are, we're overlooking the fact that science is taking us more and more in the direction of proving that we're living in some sort of a simulation. And when you're in a simulation, any of these things can be possible, and sometimes they can be possible and impossible at the same time. And so I think ultimately that what we're going to learn about the existence of extraterrestrials and the existence of all of these other phenomena that are not explained by traditional science is going to teach us some very key facts about the nature of our reality that we do not currently accept. And I think ultimately that is where things start to get very, very interesting. Well, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's all mind-blowing, all that. And, you know, an- another thing, uh, we may not be able to detect things, other things that are around us, even among us. You know, we just can't detect everything with all our senses and, and the, the scale of our senses. Yeah, I mean, we're only able to see a certain spectrum of color. We're only able to hear a certain spectrum of sound. We're only sensitive to a certain spectrum of energy. There could be all kinds of things happening around us. In fact, that video that uh, that uh, Jeremy Corbell got a hold of showing an object supposedly going into the ocean, that was not actual video. That was um, – that was infrared uh, video, so it wasn't it wasn't an actual video camera recording an object. It was an energy reading. Yeah, that whole thing is that's got me puzzled. Uh, Jeremy Corbell is uh, yeah. I haven't I haven't emailed him or anything uh, about of these. I haven't spoken to him in a long time, but you know, I mean, where it makes you wonder. First of all, where is he getting these? Is someone going to get in trouble uh, for uh, giving and these videos? out to him and also we're talking iphone video of a screen iphone video of you know you're seeing it's all iphone copies that are well supposedly the video of the radar screens was shot by a actual video crew that does this kind of work i can't remember what he called them but it's not iphone yeah it's not iphone video it was a it was a team now the video on the deck uh you know, that supposedly okay. was just shot by somebody. But, you know, to address what, what you said, Jeremy is, you know, he really has come into his own as, a, as an investigator. And he found out where who was presenting stuff and who's involved in these groups. And he got somebody to, to slip him some unclassified video that came out of some of these meetings. And that did not happen without a lot of hard work that he did. So he managed to be in the position where he got a hold of some cool stuff and, um, but what that stuff is, we don't know. Uh, the, the blinking lights of the flying pyramids, I've seen Mick West debunk that as Boca coming from a night vision goggle set. I have a hard time believing that the extraterrestrial craft are going to be using running lights that match airplanes. So I don't know. I'm a little skeptical about all those videos. Uh, yeah, that I read one in an, particular. Yes. I read another right. article about Chinese drones uh, that was put out by a, one of those military watcher websites. And they say that it's very common for foreign adversaries to troll our ships with drones, and we're not going to shoot them down if they don't pose a threat. Um, it's not something that's talked about a lot, but apparently it happens. And uh, they showed uh, images of these these drones that could have quite possibly been uh, what we're picking up on radar. They're the same size. They have, you know, they have the running lights. So, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with the videos. I'm just saying that they don't really tell us anything conclusive and there's nothing wrong with questioning them. And there's nothing wrong with paying attention to the people that are uh, 
for lack of a better word, debunking them. We have to stay objective and we have to, you know, be okay if some explanation is not exactly the one we want to embrace. We have to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Just like um, a a person of science should be okay if their idea is shown to be wrong. And Science is proven wrong all the time. And and so, yeah. you know, that's just the nature of the beast. Right, right. Um, but anyway, so w- w- what direction do you think we're going in? Do you think, you, you, like you said, do you think this is like the old boss, you know, again? Or do you think we actually are making some forward motion? Well, you know, I think that the circumstances and the techniques are pretty much the same. It's been done several times since Roswell where government uh, admits an interest in it, but then the story gets diluted and nothing definitive comes out of it. But I think we might be, and I, and I stress might, we might be in a different time where as humanity evolves, as technology evolves and as commercial spaceflight evolves, uh, there is a need to shed some light on this topic that wasn't there before, because if they don't come out and admit something, you know, sooner or later, Elon Musk is going to land on Mars. And what's going to happen if he lands next to a pyramid or some of these craft that are going up into space and some of this technology, civilian satellite technology, there's just too many eyes and ears that are out there right now that cannot be controlled by a select group. And I think that they've got to get out in front of that. And I think they're having a really hard time figuring out the best way. And I think there's a lot of argument internally about what that's going to be. And so we're going to find something here in June. In fact, there's rumors now that the report's going to come out early. So that'll be fun. But I, I hmm. just think it, uh, they, they have to scratch the surface more than they have, but I don't know how much that's going to be coming up. Steve Bassett says, and I work very closely with Steve, um, and he is of the mind that we're going to get the report in June and that there is going to be more of a push for congressional hearings and that it will be out of the congressional hearings that uh, come the day that the president makes an announcement to the people that there is an extraterrestrial presence. So I could see that. We've worked very hard to get congressional hearings. After the citizen hearing on disclosure, we did the congressional hearing initiative where we sent uh, – Steve came over to my house and we worked for about two weeks making DVDs by hand. And we made 500 sets of the citizen hearing, 5,000 discs, and we packaged them up and we made sure that one copy landed in every congressional office. And I that was called that. the – yeah, it was yeah. the congressional hearing initiative. And – if we ever get congressional hearings, it's going to be, you know, work like that that helps spear the way. Right. Kind of almost the grassroots of just a few people working on this. Um, so in, in that in that way, um, if you think there is some forward motion myself, um, I think that if the president, whoever the president may be at the time, would announce that there is an extraterrestrial presence, I don't think it's going to change our society that much unless there is a fear factor that would somehow uh, be involved. But I mean, if if it was approached in a way that, hey, uh, it's extraterrestrial and we think they've been visiting us for thousands of years, then that may relax people enough where, you know, I don't think there's going to be the big meltdown that they used to talk about. I don't uh, know, yeah. I think it's really going to determine on how they be determined by how they frame it. If they can say that, yeah, 
these things are in our airspace. They operate with impunity. They don't appear to mean us any harm. That's a little sketchy. You might have some, uh, you know, some very uh, non-favorable reactions to that. If we say they're a threat and we don't know what they want, uh, then that's even worse. If we say, you know, we've been contacted on a limited basis and assured that that we are not a threat to them and they are not a threat to us and you know that's all we know then that's going to get a different kind of reaction so i think it depends on how it gets framed and what the reality is because we don't know we know that there's probably an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race probably several and we know that the government knows a lot more than they're telling i think i'd sign on to that one but we don't know what they know and we don't know what the ultimate end game for these uh races is so what they tell us and how they frame it is going to determine the reaction. Also, it's almost like we're talking about we're one world here when we're only talking about one country. You know, every other country in the world that is looking or has looked into this topic has just as much of an opportunity to be the first to come out and, and say what they know. You know, I mean, uh, we're not necessarily going to be the, the first one that's going to come out and actually say, this is what's going on. Well, see, that's why I think think it'll be like a domino effect, you know, if it, if it happens. That's why I think there's a certain amount of, of uh, credibility to the idea that this whole topic is being managed by a very elite, very shadowy group on a worldwide basis, probably by some kind of treaty unspoken or not, because the lid has been kept on this topic through all of the world governments to a a great degree and that could not be done spontaneously and so i think that the uh i've always entertained the idea that there was a group such as m 12 that was formed and that these are the guys that manage this and they do so on a global basis with the cooperation of global governments but how could they have cooperation if a government didn't want to cooperate and who would who would head it? Would it be like something like the United Nations or something? I mean, how how would they how would they work something like that? I mean, it seems like it could be out of balance so quickly. Well, the same way we've managed to keep the secret. You know, the, the Catholic Church knows that there's an extraterrestrial presence. They know that it goes back far in our history. They've got archives that they will not show. Uh, so there is, um, at some level in governments, there are people that have been appointed by each government to be responsible for this and those people especially if you look back all the way back to the roswell days and the days before that it's not a stretch to think that those people country by country have gotten together and had this conversation and come to these agreements um it it would make sense that a sophisticated group managed this phenomenon and it would make sense that the uh the agreement that it has to stay in secrecy uh is obviously for a profound reason and so if the phenomenon is real and if there is no such structure in place, then it seems to me that these countries that say they're wide open about it would be coming up with a lot better evidence. You can't say the USA is the only place uh, uh, extraterrestrial spacecraft may have crashed. It's, it's happened in all kinds of other countries. And even the countries that say, hey, we're going to open the files, what do those files contain? Not much. And we know there's more. So something's going on that is is some sort of an orchestrated effort to control the secret. Yeah, um, I would have to try to, you know, you you try to figure these, if you're trying to figure these things out, what would be the mindset of whoever organized this and what would 
their advantage. There always seems like there has to be an advantage for someone, uh, you know, personal advantage in some type of way. Or, uh, or is this, you know, anchored in some government like ours where there's funding uh, appropriated for it or something? It's, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out an incentive to keep something like this quiet if, if it's known. Well, you know that they say about government programs, they just, it's the same kind of situation. Once it started, it's hard to stop. So if you're dealing with mm-hmm. something that happened back in the 40s and this group was convened to do this, and over time they got more and more power, more and more autonomy, and you know, we know that it was concluded by the Robertson panel that even if this was real, it would have a negative effect on society. So they could have started off with as innocent a agenda as we have to keep a lid on this and we have to have whole entire operations to debunk it. And there's, and then, you know, maybe that wasn't supposed to be the way it was, but then we had the Cold War and we had, th- we had other things that caused delays in the ability to really come out with this stuff. You know, if you're, up against an adversary that might nuke you off the planet, it's a bad time to mention that, yeah, we have all this technology. So there's a lot of reasons why once the secret was was committed to and once the apparatus was put in place to maintain the secret, there's a lot of, of reason to understand why they just never got around to unraveling the secret. It was just never the right time and it was never an easy thing to do. And it's gotten harder and harder over time, especially when this whole group, its DNA was was formed to manage the secret. It was a group formed out of the perceived need for secrecy, and they got more and more powerful and deeper and deeper, and there was just never a time to unwind it that, that worked. And now they're up against the realization that sooner or later, irrefutable evidence is going to come to light, and if they're not in front of it, then they're not going to be able to manage it. So it's not that hard to understand. I'm not saying that I believe that that's 100% true, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about all this stuff and the conversations I've had with people and researchers and other people that are inside, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, so if if uh, if they knew, like, the, if this came out um, eventually, do you think – that also there has been, you know, the the uh, rumored but backed um, engineering on some, you know, I mean, the, what they talk about, the technology, you know, that uh, has come out like fiber optics. There's one of those things that they say, oh, you know, that was a technology that was back engineered, you know, and stuff like that. Um, do you think that there is that any of that technology? I mean, this is an opinion I'm asking. Well, I think the stories make sense. I know that, you know, when Philip Corso wrote The Day After Roswell, he basically laid this stuff out, but then a lot of people have just don't think that he has that credibility. Uh, the jury's out on, in my book on Corso. I don't know either way. Um, I've talked to a lot of people that really, really support his story, and I've talked to other people that say, uh, that it's not, you know, not true at all. So, but, uh, you know, what do you think about that? But then when you think, what would a government do? If they recovered debris from, say, a Roswell, they would do exactly what Corso described. They would they would secret the stuff away. They would put it under management by a group that wasn't talking to people. And then they would secretly start handing it out to people in industry that might be able to do something with it. And so it's certainly possible, even likely, that some of these technologies came from from this. We had a big leap 
in technology right after Roswell. Uh, we know that the nitinol uh, memory-retaining alloy came out of a naval weapons research lab, and it was discovered supposedly by accident. So, you know, that kind of by circumstantial evidence supports that idea. Um, this person keeps uh, keeps posting the same question, and I was unaware of it. Maybe you've heard about it, but uh, uh, Scott wanted to know, what are your thoughts on the deleting of Elizondo's emails? I haven't heard about that. Have you? I haven't, but if it's a, if it's his Pentagon emails, well, certainly they're going to get deleted by the Defense Department once he steps down. Um, Lou is in a very, very precarious place. I do not envy him at all. Him and Christopher Mellon and the people that are trying to navigate this are playing a game of three-dimensional chess uh, with a very old establishment. And, you know, I've got some some footage of Lou where, where we were talking about things, and he certainly said some things that uh, really lead me to believe and agree that he knows a lot of stuff that he's unable to tell. And I asked him about that. You know, I'm like, well, don't you think you owe this knowledge to humanity if you have it? And his reply was, no, I'm a patriot, I'm a soldier, I took an oath, and that is the code by which I live. So it's got to be really, really hard for somebody like him to have to balance that. You have information, you know it would be a game changer if, if you could release it, but you can't. And so you have to navigate these waters in such a way that you're pushing for this stuff to come out. And but, but you can't just come on TV and say everything that you know. So it's got to be tough. And the other thing is is that we know from uh, Lou hiring Danny Sheehan and going after the inspector general that he is dealing with a big faction inside the Pentagon that wants to shut him down and wants this whole thing to just go away. So as, when he came out saying that he was the guy from ATIP, the Pentagon actually put out a release and said, no, he never ran ATIP. And Harry Reid had to write a letter verifying that, of course, he did. So there is internal stuff, and Lou has taken a lot of risk. And so as far as his emails being deleted, any kind of official emails, I, I can believe it. Um, I'll look more into that story, but it, it makes sense that, that they would be spirited away. Um, so, Yeah. Well, um, someone in the chat said um, that it's a regulation, basically, um, they that they're not to delete um, the mailbox. Uh, where did he put it? Something about seven years. They're not supposed to. I don't know. I don't well, know you know, my, my guess is that uh, his emails weren't deleted. They were just made inaccessible. Um, there's there's stories out there, and I, I don't want to speculate, but there's stories out there about uh, his security clearance being threatened and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, Lou's emails are probably highly sensitive, and they may have just been sequestered away uh, to where access to him is extremely controlled. Do you think that if he didn't start coming out with any of this stuff on his own, that uh, we'd be in the same place that we were in to begin with? Uh, do you think he's like the major force in this, or do you think it would have moved along anyway? I think he's still working. Um, I think that the uh, this is strictly conjecture on my part, but I think that, that what we've seen since the announcement of TTSA is an orchestrated process to get us closer to disclosure. And unfortunately, it's being orchestrated by the same people that have been instrumental in keeping this thing a secret for as long as it's been. But I think that, you know, they, they, they sat down and they said, well, we have to have a logical way to go about this. And he was given a certain amount of latitude to, to start what he's doing. No, 
I don't think he would have come out going on CNN and saying, yeah, I've worked for a secret government program and we might not be alone. Somebody cleared the way for him to say what he said and somebody also drew the boundaries that govern what he can't say. And it's not him. So there you go. Have you confronted him basically with what you just said when you interviewed him? I did. And what was his reaction? Well, <laughs> we're going to we're going to release that video uh, oh, sometime okay. around the MUPON symposium. I'm not going to talk about what it is because then I'm just another guy out there bloviating. I, I have the, the proof is in the pudding. And when I know that it's safe for Lou and I know that it's safe for everybody else, uh, we will put out what I call the Elizondo tapes, which is a combination of um, interviews and, and segments with Lou Elizondo, some that I made and some that I've been given access to, uh, that tell a very interesting story when you connect the dots. Okay. Uh, we have someone from that worked in the defense department um, in chat. And uh, he's going to, I just asked him to elaborate more on the emails. Um, he would know the inside story and something like that. Um, yeah. Cause I don't know enough about it. I'm just, my response to that is just kind of like, well, it's logical that certainly they'd be made unaccessible, but I'd have to do some more studying on this particular story to really have any kind of qualified right to comment. Yeah. So um, I would like for uh, Kevin to, uh, in chat, if you would elaborate more on that, it would be interesting. And I can put that up on the screen just because this would be a person that would really, really understand how that works. Um, well, you know, I think it, it it will be interesting on how this all goes. But, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned last week about uh, Lou being called out as a disinformation agent. But do you actually think that it was kind of a possibility of some type of orchestration. I, I do understand that because, you know, when TTSA first started um, and all that, I could just see that there was something, something that just seemed a little different. Uh, I couldn't quite put my thumb on it, but it seemed kind of unusual. Um, and that it's always been a little bit of a question mark, that whole situation. You know, before I go into that, I just popped over to the chat and I see this goof on guy and he said, ride that Elizondo wave to the top. And you know what I have to say to that is I've had this footage since 2017 and I haven't released it out of consideration to Lou and out of letting things unfold. And I have not tried to capitalize on it at all. And I'm still not going to put it out until uh, there's a situation where everybody's in alignment. So if I wanted to capitalize and ride the Lou Elizondo wave, I got the biggest surfboard. So no, I haven't done that. And, and uh, you know, I'm sorry you think that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We have a, we have an active chat tonight. And, oh, I see my friend Mark Stanley's in there. He's a great musician. Uh, hi, Mark. Hope you're doing hi, well. Hi, Mark. All right. So, uh, Kevin uh, Kevin Childress is who I was talking about earlier. Um, all email, and this this gentleman would know, all emails are kept for a defined period, for defined periods. Anything like this will be kept indefinitely. The email account is shut down, but the emails don't go away. So I'm wondering, uh, I don't, I haven't seen this report where his emails were deleted. So I'm only going by what's popping in on chat. Um, it would be interesting to look into that a little deeper. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm looking at this right now. It's on uh, John Greenwald's uh, site, the Black Vault. Oh, yeah, I uh, see that. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll review that. Uh, you know, the thing is, is yeah, I'm going to have to look into this a little bit more. Uh, obviously, breaking news. <laughs> yeah, these you know these Freedom of Information Act requests, especially they take sometimes years, and for them to say, well, we deleted them. I don't know. We're going to have to look into that. I can't comment on this right now. It does seem like a pretty fresh story. Yeah. Hey, uh, speaking of that, you've done a lot of uh, FOIAs. Um, Can you talk about how successful you've been with those? I actually haven't done any of those. Um, MUFON does it share. I I have not personally done. But you've reported on it because I I saw something you did, the reporting. So Yeah, well, I just reported on the ones that that Anthony Bregalia filed about the the, uh, materials research. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and it seems to me there was some controversy about that. I think that the, uh, yeah, there was. Um, not so much about my report. I think my report covered it from different angles. I think there was a certain amount of uh, blowback on Anthony Bergaglia for the way he framed everything and some of his reporting about it, uh, which kind of translated into comments about my story. I had people criticizing the story that clearly didn't watch it. So I don't know what to say about that. I went back and I looked at it several times and, um, you know, I, I, I still think that it was a good piece. Hmm. Hmm. Well, um, yeah. So let's see the last time I talked to you, I can't even remember where you were involved in something at the time. And, and was it, do you ever write a book or what was it you were doing back then? Or was it just the videos? Well, I, I did have a book that came out in, when was that? That was like 2012. So that probably wasn't. Yeah. But we, I think we did talk about it. I, oh yeah. The, in my, yeah, yeah. I have a book called Messiah Awakenings and it's basically the, uh, the Christ energy returns to thwart the new world order. It's a pretty fun book. You can find it on Kindle. It's a uh, Messiah's colon awakenings. And what's on there is book one. I, I published it just to make sure that I had it out there. Um, and it's a project I've been developing for a really long time. Uh-huh. And is that something you do you ever consider writing more or was that the one? No, I've written thing? the other three, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing a film project around it with a script. And I want to put the whole thing out all at the same time. It's a big story, yeah, obviously fiction, but maybe not. Uh-huh. Huh. How about that? Uh, and, you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier and, uh, you know, what the government knows or doesn't know. A lot of times when I talk about like when people see, certain ufos and let's just talk about the black triangles that are reported so many times that are you know either making a humming noise or no sound at all uh there seem to be floating or or gliding uh light in the center light on each corner that type of thing lots and lots of people have seen these um i know um a, a, a woman that i work with occasionally um saw one in 1978 we talked earlier about lee spiegel's uh, UFO sighting that he saw. I'll post a picture uh, of what he, uh, an illustration of uh, what he had seen, you know, way back then in 1975. A lot of people, when you talk about these craft, um, they think they're secret military. That's what you hear over and over again. It seems to come up that they think there's something to do with the military. And I guess I wanted to find out uh, what your thoughts on the military aspect of this. I'm just going to pop up these Beagles. Uh, illustration that uh, Daniel Hickson uh, did. Um, this was the Lumberton UFO uh, sighting in North Carolina back in 1975. A depiction of that 
with the police officers. And there's Lee Spiegel in the center with the light beaming down on him. He looks like Serpico. <laughs> <laughs> I have a picture like that from the Project Blue Book cast party. They had a little thing set up, and you could get the little beam of light coming down at you. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> I think anything with lights is questionable. And the reason for that is if you're a super advanced race with super advanced technology, unless you want to be seen, you don't need to be seen. I mean, they probably have the ability to make these craft invisible. We're close to having that technology ourselves. So when you see things that, that are, that have running lights, uh, blinking lights, stuff like that, I tend to be pretty skeptical. I think that there's been rumors about the stealth blimp. There's been rumors about the, I think it's called the TR three B, which is a anti-gravitic ship supposedly. So, when it comes to the triangles, I'm my my inclination is that they are more likely to be um, ours than extraterrestrial. But uh, w- could they possibly have had this technology in 1975 and kept it out of the public view all this time? And and when it is in the public view, why would it be? Well, it depends what they're using them for. Um, you know, UFOs have played a role in disinformation and the covering up of existing technology for a really long time. So if things are being seen in the sky, you kind of have to assume that whatever is, is allowing that wants them to be seen. I believe that any kind of advanced, like I said, any kind of advanced extraterrestrial species is going to be able to conceal themselves if they want to be concealed. And Top secret government aircraft um, are going to be able to conceal themselves if they want to be concealed. There's a there's an upside to having these stories. If you have people reporting UFOs, thinking they're aliens, thinking there's no explanation for them, it gives the government cover for the fact that they were testing something out in your neighborhood. So at the end of the day, the jury's out. We don't know for sure. But like I said, anything with lights on it, it just doesn't make sense to me that it's some extraterrestrial beings. Um, yeah, I mean, in that case, you'd think either, A, they just don't care, or um, also there is a possibility of, um, you know, a propulsion component of some of these, like, for instance, there's speculation on the big amber light in the center. A lot of these triangle UFOs that people have seen has something to do with propulsion or anti-gravity or whatever it is it's doing. You know, um, but do you think we could we would actually as a government could have an anti-gravity device? I mean, think if that really did exist, how uh, transportation could be completely revolutionary. Um, Well, see, that's part of the the whole reason that if there's if there's a group of people keeping this thing a secret, that's a whole part of the whole reason they can't come clean, because keeping that kind of technology from humanity is almost a crime against humanity, because technology that would cause such a quantum leap and such a quantum shift for the better is pretty unforgivable if you're not sharing it. And so uh, there are lots of rumors about the existence of anti-gravitic craft. There's a lot of. um, stuff going all the way back to the 50s and beyond uh, where they were studying anti capabilities. And so we know that it's been on the radar screen for a long time. And certainly if there's crash retrieval uh, items that have been found, uh, that stuff has been studied. So it, the question is, do I think that we may have anti craft? I think that that's quite possible, or at least anti technology. 
Now, I spoke to uh, I spoke to a friend in Australia. Um, she was uh, listening to the show in the very early times, and uh, when she was uh, she's um, in her I would say mid thirties, maybe a little bit older. When she was just a very young girl, um, she felt like a um, like a pushing, like a force down um, her and her grandmother. I think what they were gardening. And they felt like they were being pushed to the ground by a force. And then right over them was this big, huge triangle, the whole thing, just like I, I'm mentioning. And I think it was uh, I think it was also in the like the early 1970s. And now th- that's in Australia. So we're not talking a technology if that technology existed all the way back since 1970s, um, unless we shot down to Australia and was buzzing around down there. Um, it, it's possible that. And then you hear about um, uh, what is that case in the 1990s? And um, I'm trying to think of the European countries. Uh, I'm just drawing a blank. Um, where well, they we've got military the- bases all over the place. And, you know, one way to test something out is you're not going to do it in your backyard all the time. And, you know, the rumors about these flying triangles are that they're long range, basically stealth blimps. Uh, th- th- I'm not saying that I think that that's the answer, but they probably have a long range and they've probably been, been deployed all over the place for various reasons, if they're ours. And if they're not ours, then whatever's flying around in triangles and waving at us with blinking lights and, and strange phenomenon, obviously, uh, you know, just, why don't you just land already, get it over with? Yeah, that's it. The Belgium, <laughs> sorry. I just couldn't think of it. The Belgium triangle that, that, what did they see? A, a thousand witnesses or I forget how many um, people saw that, but thanks uh, Dave for uh, pushing that out. <laughs> My brain's a little, uh, uh, all, all these people chimed in, Joe, you named it. John, everyone chimed in that it was the Belgium Triangles. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's another great and in, in interesting case. And uh, but but let's just say we're going back to Lee Spiegel again. You know, when I popped that up earlier, you know, uh, what's what's the deal of uh, beaming down the light on everybody and scaring the heck out of everyone? I, I just wouldn't understand if it was us doing it. Would we do it to ourselves? And this thing was showing up. Um, in this area, you know, for like weeks at a time and then bam, it's gone. You know, uh, no one sees it again. It's it's all just, I mean, I'm trying to think of a logic if, if it was us as a government trying to test something out would is that is that how we would well i mean it? think uh, about the rumors of my labs that there's entire squads of of guys that are out there kidnapping people disguising themselves as aliens making the the whole thing appear to be extraterrestrial when really it's part of a secret program to experiment on people who knows there's so many stories and so many rumors that that all you can do is speculate uh and also, you know, we're dealing again with the fact that we have a very interesting nature of reality here. And what one person sees, another person might not see. What one person experiences, somebody else might not experience. But that doesn't mean they didn't experience it. And I think that, all, again, I'll say it again, I think that all of this phenomenon is pointing to the fact that we're in a really strange reality and a lot of things are possible. A lot of things can happen. And if there, if these things are not showing us anything else, they're showing us that I was with a guy named Michael Schratt recently. Um, oh yeah. 
very, very good researcher, great guy. And he has collected basically reports and built models and, and done elaborate CAD drawings of different yeah. UFOs that, that people have described over the years. And he gave me a copy of his files in a, in a big blue binder. And the one thing that just kind of struck me is that out of hundreds of different ships, there's hardly any two that look the same or do the same things. So you have all these people that have had all these these encounters, but the stories are are, are very dissimilar and the ships are very dissimilar. The flying triangles is is an example of something that has some consistency, but even those the the descriptions of them that there it's never the same exact description twice. Interesting. Um, you know, I usually announce at the end of my show, a lot of people don't hang in for that. So I just wanted to announce that uh, next um, next week's guest is coming on. Um, and the person's name, it's a woman. Her name is uh, Kaz Clark. And uh, this is a sighting that happened in 2016 in Wales, the UK. And it's called the uh, Pentrich, uh, Pentrich, like, a, a, I guess it's a five-shaped object. UFO incident that happened there in 2016. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's another strange thing when you talk about, you know, the the poly polygon sides of uh, these, not always uh, triangular, but, you know, there are some odd shaped, um, you know, things that people are seeing. I've talked to people that have seen box shaped, you know, uh, a UFO acting in bizarre cases. You know, and it kind of almost makes me think, you know, maybe you're right when we don't we don't really know what reality is because there's so many strange things that people have seen over the years that just don't make any sense. I think at the end of the day, one of the keys to unraveling all of this is going to be under getting a better understanding of our own perceptions, how they work, and really starting to understand things about the mechanics of physics and the mechanics of our actual physical reality that we don't understand now. And some of these phenomena are going to be revealed to be part of a much, much bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. that That's interesting. It, you know, I mean, it's funny. It's, I talk to people like you and, um, you know, other guests on the show al- along the way and it never, it never gets old. You know, I've been doing this, the show's coming up on 10 years now in just a few months and uh, it just it it seems like there are so many people that have viewpoints. We haven't found the answer. I don't think that we're going to find the answer anytime soon. But it's just interesting to hear so many different minds having different viewpoints. And, and at the uh, end of the day, that speaks to what kind of what I just said. There is probably we're going to find there's no one answer to everything. We're living in a flexible, malleable. Uh, system that allows for a lot of different things that we don't quite understand. Right. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, you, 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 you know, you talk about all the different, uh, theories that could be, and then you can get into things like, um, you know, a different dimensional situation, you know, people, uh, talk about that aspect as well um and then time travel there's people have good really solid good arguments for all types of things that could be happening well look let's look at what physics already knows about the nature of this universe okay we already know that that desk you're sitting at is nothing but 
energy vibrating at a certain frequency to create the illusion of matter. Okay, we know that your brain is instrumental in interpreting that just like you're interpreting code. Uh, we know that the entire universe functions on very basic algorithms and mathematics. So basically, we already know that it's a program. Now, how you choose to look at that, you could say, well, a program resembles the way reality works, or reality resembles the way a program works, but at the end of the day, it's the same stuff. If you can unplug yourself from the idea that, that, you know, we're some kind of, we're in some kind of a computer, like a quantum computer or whatever, but you look at the fabric of reality functioning the same way, basically, that a computer game functions, then it, it, it really, makes it easier to understand that if you're in a simulation, any of these things can be happening. And we don't know why we're in a simulation, but we're beginning to puzzle our way into the realization that, yes, reality functions just like a simulation. Therefore, maybe it is. Right. Yeah. I watch I watch a lot of uh, documentaries where uh, Jamal Kalali, I think uh, that's uh, his name, and uh, he does talk about how uh, you know, matter is so puzzling. And when you get into quantum physics, how difficult it is to explain, you know, what you're talking about, the vibrating particles that actually, you know, nothing is, uh, it's just so hard. To None of it understand. is really here. It, it, yeah. it, it you know, <laughs> the, 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 the core of, of everything is energy. There is, there yeah. is nothing, all, all comes forth from that in temporary illusion. And if you look back to the most ancient teachings of almost all the world's religions and, and sages going back as far as history, it's acknowledged that we're in an illusion. And so as we explore the UFO phenomenon and as we look for the answers and we say, well, maybe they're, you know, from Zeta Reticuli, whatever, we need to be understanding that there's a bigger picture being shown to us by this and doing the micro dissecting about, you know, are they from here? Are they from another dimension? Well, if we're in a simulation, what is another dimension? It's probably another simulation or it's part of this one that we just haven't discovered yet. Um, at the end of the day, the, the answer to all of this is going to shed a whole lot of light on things that people are not connecting right now. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, uh, that whole aspect is, is, is just, you know, you seem like a person that does a lot of thinking. <laughs> and, yeah, because I, I have nothing yeah. else to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I find when I'm doing things like painting or whatever I'm doing, um, you know, I tend to uh, try to I tend to think real deep thoughts about about reality. I mean, when you hear about if you took all the space out of every atom in your body or, you know, you'd be on. I don't know how many people would fit on a pinhead, but, you know, quite a few. Um, you know, it's amazing. Back when I first got into video, I was, uh, I remember this was a turning point in my life. I was in Florida and I was hired by MTV spring break people and the girls gone wild. People were there. It was in spring break. It was Panama city. It was just a wild ruckus party with video cameras. And I remember I came back from that. Uh, you know, I had a production company in, in Florida. That was my first one. I bought Joe Scarborough's old recording studio and, um, and, turned it into a video production house too. But um, I came back and I was like, just, I was just empty and I didn't want to do, I, I'm like, this isn't why I got into video production. 
And I found an article by Peter Gersten about uh, in UFO magazine about the reality of our reality. And it was all about how, you know, maybe it's a simulation, blah, blah. And this was, you know, 30 years ago. And it fascinated me. And the topic of my work ever since then has been nature, reality, life after death, and the ET question. Because it, it kind of blows me away that people don't spend more time contemplating these things. You know, we're only here for a blink of an eye, and there's a reason we're here. And I like to believe that there is something that we graduate here to go do. And so it's really easy to get distracted in the minutia of this place. But it surprises me that people don't spend more time thinking about this stuff. Right, right. Um, I had uh, Rafe uh, Fernandez on the show quite a while ago, but uh, someone wanted to know what your thoughts were on the Edgar Mitchell uh, Institute and uh, how Ray is doing. You know, I worked with Ray a lot when the uh, when he first founded Free. Um, we were working together on a film project, and I helped him develop his materials and stuff to go out and pitch it. Uh, I was going to be producing the film in the beginning, but I had some other things come up, and they didn't really have it together uh, to the point where I could jump in and, and start. I spent a lot of time with Ray talking about free. They put out the book, um, which is the result of their research. And Ray is one of the guys out there, uh, him and Rudy Shield and the people back him up, that really are saying that all these things are connected. And so it was Ray who kind of opened my eyes to, yeah, what is that they, if they are all connected, how and why? Because if you say, uh, you know, like UFOs, near death experiences, angelic encounters and abductions, if you say those are all connected, it's really hard to understand how and why they would all be connected until you realize that it's not that the phenomenon themselves are connected, like they're all coming from the same source for the same reason, but the mechanisms under which they work in relation to the mechanisms of reality, those are connected. And Ray and his group are the people that put that on the table. And it really hasn't found the mainstream audience because I don't think it's been explained as, as well as it could be. But yeah, Ray's, Ray and his group did some amazing work. Now, what about, um, I'm probably going to open a can of worms by asking this question. I don't want to make anybody else mad. (laughs) 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 You know, it's like I I didn't, I didn't mean to tick somebody off. Oh, no, no. I'm talking about the, uh, the Wilson memo or whatever came out of, supposedly came out of um, uh, Edgar Mitchell's uh, estate and uh, from an Australian researcher and uh, first uh, obtained that uh, supposed document that I think, uh, as far as I know, there, there's there's nothing to it. I'm not I'm not really sure. You know, I'm kind of uh, haven't looked. It's an interesting it. document. Um, it's not any kind of official document. It's notes from a meeting, and one of the people right. in that meeting denies that the meeting ever took place. So, um, the fact that Edgar had it in his files and he never shared it, you know, probably speaks to that a little bit. Edgar was pretty good about telling what he knew. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that that's a good point right there that uh, that no one has really addressed too much. You know, why didn't he come out with if it was so important? Because you're right. He was uh, he was more or less an open book about the things that he knew. I interviewed Edgar several two two times that I can remember. Um, And I was always I was always fascinated by the discussions because I used to ask Edgar, how did it feel when you walked on the moon? And 
it seemed like he would grapple with that a little bit. And so, you know, I always wondered if he'd gone through some sort of debriefing or some sort of something to kind of had an effect on him about how his emotions associated with his experience. Yeah, I posted a interview I did with uh, Alan Bean, who is the uh, sixth man on the moon. And uh, basically, uh, uh, my interview with him was about his artwork, but I still posted on this channel, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, uh, because I thought it was interesting what he talked about, what it was like being on the moon. And just trusting that, you know, all these people did their part in making, you know, his his uh, suit, his space suit. And, you know, it wasn't going to have a leak. And, you know, he thought about all these different things. But he just did the task that was at hand, even though he'd look up and see the, you know, the big blue marble and realize that he was not, you know, he was not standing on it. That's exactly uh, yeah. right. You know, the training took over is is what they say. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it, it's amazing if you think about when that was, 1969, that we actually landed on the moon with, uh, I think it's technology that is the key fob on your, you know, on your car starter, you know, your car alarm uh, had, had the same, you know, type of technology as far as the advancement of it. And uh, that we could actually do that and, and, and make it and come back. I think that's just totally amazing with what we had at the time and why we haven't gone there since. That's a bizarre thing, and that can open up to uh, a lot of conspiracies. What are we seeing my behind backdrop, you? My backdrop died. Oh, is that, is that what it is? Okay. Well, that's good because we only I, have I guess the, I guess the big TV went to sleep. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully well, the same thing hasn't happened to the audience. <laughs> that's why I was telling everyone who the guest was next week, just in case. Uh, so uh, let's see, where can someone uh, find you if they want to look at your material? Again, put that out there if you would. Sure. Um, most of the original stuff that I've been doing lately is on MUFON Television. A lot of it is free. You can go to MUFONtelevision.com and click on some of the links on the front page. Uh, some of it is behind a paywall, but there's certainly a lot of free stuff too. Um, and then I've got the MUFON 2021 symposium coming up. Military and government witnesses are going to gather in Las Vegas and tell us a few things we don't already know. And so you can get a subscription to MUFON TV uh, and access to that live stream. Um, all for a pretty reasonable price. And so there's a lot of free stuff that I give away, but I do have to pay the bills just like everybody else. So there's some stuff that is exclusive, but um, that's where I'm at now. And then my show on Amazon, uh, bigger questions, whole season of interviews with uh, luminaries in the UFO field. You can catch those there. Uh, and you can also catch them on YouTube. If you just Google Ron James, bigger questions, uh, there's a lot of stuff. Okay. And when do you, when is that one, that interview, when you interviewed uh, Lou Elizondo itself, when is that one going to air exactly? I'm going to do an exclusive showing of it at the symposium and for the people that bought the live stream. And then after that, we're going to decide if we're going to take it out and, and make it more public. I see. I, I, right, you know, on. I really, I have to make sure that, uh, that a lot of the stuff that's in there, um, it's my interview. I can do whatever I want to with it, but I also have to protect the people that may have slipped of the tongue when they were being interviewed. Okay. All right, Ron. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you tonight. Thanks, Martin. And I'll let you know if anything new pops up that uh, is worthy of a appearance. All right. Excellent. You take care. Thanks. Thank you.
All right, everyone. So again, uh, next week we have Kaz Clark on uh, to talk about uh, that UFO incident back in uh, 2016. Again, uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, hanging in tonight with us and we'll see you next week. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky. Good night.